Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined as always by nefarious ne'er-do-well and rogue trader Jeremy Goldcorn. How are you, Jeremy? Very well, very well. So, you know, the substantial and, and still growing Chinese presence in Africa is a topic that we have wanted to revisit for some time, right? Um, last week we had John Bailey on the show. Um, this week uh, we're going to continue. I think we both agree that it is one of the most impactful and probably least well understood developments underway in our time. I mean, not just for China, but you know, for the world. Uh, but there have been kind of, I think, a surprisingly small number of, of books that have been written about it. In part because the number of people who are qualified to write such a book, it's pretty small. So. Today we are delighted to have with us one of those few, those proud people, the author of one of uh, the, the, the most important books to come out on China and Africa. We welcome Howard French, the author of China's Second Continent: How a Million Migrants Are Building an Empire in Africa. He was for many years a correspondent here in China, based in Shanghai, for the New York Times, and has also reported for a long time and lived for an awfully long span in West Africa and Central Africa. Howard, welcome to Seneca. Great to be with you, Kaiser. So let's jump right in. I guess a lot of people who, who've taken on the, the China and Africa thing,、um, who pay attention to it, would kind of draw a spectrum that spans. Deborah Rodigam and Howard French. <laughs> you think that, that's sort of fair?、Um, uh, Deborah Rodigam. She has a, a, a book that came out several years ago called "The Dragon's Gift," and it kind of sort of it's all there in the title.、Um, yours is about uh, uh, migrants building an empire in Africa. There's,、um, you know, maybe just from the titles, you can sort of see a, a, a bit of a difference in the approach.、Um, Deb Brodkin's book. I've I've heard her speak before. She's a very compelling speaker, very very bright person. She basically makes a case.、Um, I mean, sort of central to her case is that、uh, what China has been doing in Africa is not unlike what China had done to it by Japan、uh, in the good sense in the 1970s. That is, infrastructure for resources deals that 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 laid down. Uh, really, foundations for、uh, for China's future development. What's how do you position yourself、uh, with vis-a-vis her book, and do you, do you kind of think that this is a false dichotomy that we're drawing? I think it's a bit of a false dichotomy. I wasn't write, didn't write my book in any sense in response to Deborah Broderick's book.、I've, I read her book years ago, and、mm-hmm. I've been on panels with her, and I respect her work, but I didn't really have、uh, an answer to her approach、sure. in mind as I set out to write my book. And if you you know anyone who knows the book. Quickly realizes that it's a completely different、um, enterprise. That's right. Um, um, you know, so my working title for the book was actually "Haphazard Empire,"、mm-hmm. and I think that that is、uh, a better title. The publisher didn't,、uh, and so I didn't. I had to sign off on the title that was eventually used, but it wasn't really my original idea.、Um, I think "Haphazard Empire"、um, really captures. The sense of what I was trying to say better, and a sense of the reality on the ground better. Haphazard in a couple of ways. Haphazard in the sense that, in the mid 1990s, China launches into what becomes this extraordinary embrace. And I think you're absolutely correct to say that this is going to be, at the human level, one of the most important developments of this century.、Um, uh, but I don't think that the Chinese state, for all of its consultation and planning and Forethought、uh, in thinking this thing through had any idea, and certainly not any intention, that there was going to be the movement of peoples on this scale from China to Africa so quickly, and so that's the first element of haphazardness that that arises,、um, and I believe that with the movement of peoples on this scale, 
in such a compressed period of time, then subsequently all sorts of other haphazard things or unforeseeable things begin to happen. Uh, you have uh, Chinese di diasporas that were established, let's say, uh, significantly beginning in the Ming Dynasty throughout mm -hmm. Southeast Asia. And nobody at that time had any means of anticipating what this would all mean down the road. It came to mean quite a lot. It sure. became an extraordinarily important thing. And so, so haphazard sort of suggests all of these things. Right, right. And so, I mean, I, I was originally planning on asking you to unpack your use of the E-word empire, and I think you've just already already done that. Um, I think uh, in, in some reviews of the book that I've seen, there's nonetheless a sort, of, sort of pushback. Um, there's, you know, neocolonialism sort of haunts the discussion. Uh, do you want to maybe, maybe go a little bit further and talk about that, maybe talk about sure. the C-word? Um, sure. I mean, so there's many things to say about um, empire and neocolonialism, which are sort of two interrelated concepts. Um, you know, for me, uh, empire um, uh, changes over time. Uh, imperial behavior changes over time. It fits the sort of mood or the needs of the moment. Mm -hmm. If you look at uh, manifestations of empire across the ages, from one age to the, to the next, they're very, very different. Right. There's um, no one static definition of what constitutes imperialism. Uh, ab absolutely. Um, and so people who read this title, who, who sort of enter into this topical discourse, who think that if you say that there's neocolonialism or some kind of imperial project involving China and Africa, then that should be measured by the last major episode of colonialism in the world, meaning the European colonialism of Africa and other parts of the world. For me, that's an unrealistic expectation. Mm -hmm. Why would one expect the late 19th century and up to the middle of the 20th century to look like the early 21st century in terms of these things? Human expectations, norms of behavior, needs of economic models, et cetera, et cetera, are all different now. Uh, the, the, the essential unchanging thing um, in both empire uh, and neocolonialism. And I should say that in my book, I sort of raise this interrogation about empire. I don't actually come out and say that sure. China is, whatever the title says, I don't actually come out and say China is an imperial power. In I think you, you use the word haphazard. You say uh, it's haphazard, but nonetheless an empire right. or nevertheless an empire, right? That's well, so the unchanging feature across the ages is disproportion, that there's a disproportion of means uh, and abilities, uh -huh. and these and these disproportions introduce dynamics that are just unavoidable. Um, and so you have a powerful party whose agency is being acted out upon a weaker party, and the essential sort of final ingredient is that the weaker party has very limited choices. And so uh, th through this kind of d disproportionate dynamic, then you arrive at um, various kinds of imperial situations. And I think we are, I think, I mean, the mere existence of a million, and I actually think there's quite a more. bit more than a million people from China and Africa in the last decade or so, decade and a half at, at the outside, um, without any African agency about this arrival or these large-scale movements is, in fact, itself a manifesto. Um, sure. You know, how, how do they get there? What, what are they doing? Uh, and maybe you could Where tell us the story of yeah. one, one individual. Sure. Well, so my first task in take, taking on this book, having written two big pieces of journalism about China and Africa, first for the New York Times in 2006. And then the, the Atlantic, series, right? And then for the Atlantic a couple of years later. After that, but, you know, I didn't actually discover this topic. But when I wrote the Times thing, it wasn't a hugely popular topic. Um, 
And by the time I write the Atlantic piece, it's now lots of people are writing about it. And so the Atlantic piece comes out and book publishers begin to approach me. I wasn't really sure that I wanted to write more on this topic. I'm sort of by nature a pretty restless person, and I had done two major sort of statements on this. And I, before declining it, I sort of paused to think, and I sort of ruminated about what I had said and what I hadn't said and what I had seen in two very large reporting trips for these two separate projects, and thought about my, I don't know, 35-plus years of experience in Africa. And the thing that really stuck with me was these, the encounters that I had, which I had not really made terribly much of in, in the Times or the Atlantic pieces, with ordinary Chinese people mm -hmm. acting out of their own sort of individual agency in an African environment, which, were, which was something totally new for his, in terms of my own personal experience for me. So I set out in writing this book to try to understand that. And you ask, what it, how do they get there? What, what's the mechanism? That was the first assignment that I gave myself. And the thing that I very quickly discover is that beginning in the mid-1990s, you have you know, uh, Jiang Zemin saying, you know, announcing the go-out policy and then under that heading making a singular priority of Africa and setting Chinese provinces in competition with each other as ha often happens in lots of policy things. Um, and so they, they begin to send their public works and construction companies into the African space to look for business. Well, I like to tell this story using a particular country, Senegal, because this is where it all came together for me. So Hunan construction companies start showing up in Senegal in the mid-1990s. The first big project was a national stadium. Um, these are workers, right? There's, I don't know the exact number. Let's say a 1,000 workers. They have a contract to be there for two years. They show up like most Chinese people, in fact, like most Americans, having no idea really about Africa. And mostly, for whatever, whatever notions they had about Africa were sort of pejorative stereotypes. Sure. Africa is as hot as the Sahara Desert. Africa is dangerous. Africa is full of disease. Africans are barbarians, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they show up in Senegal, and they discover that actually Senegal has a Mediterranean climate, and that the capital of Senegal is a really, really charming place, and that the sky is blue every day in Senegal and clear, um, and that Senegal to the casual observer from a Chinese perspective, doesn't look like it's occupied by people. You drive from one place to another and there's green land everywhere. And so the Chinese people, one, three, five percent of them at the end of their contracts say, I'm not going back to China, I'm going to stay in Senegal. This becomes the sort of seedbed for this human movement. Um, and then these people begin to do various things. And just by virtue of human nature, the ones who succeed, relatively speaking, be, begin to transmit all sorts of language and imagery of their success back home at the time via QQ. So you see Mr. Joe, you know, who's built a three-story house for himself, who's got a sea view, and he's got a car driveway full of cars, and he's sending pictures back to Honan saying... Some horrible little... <laughs> Fourth-tier nightmarish city, right? <laughs> and his neighbors. Well, you only need to really say Hunan. I mean, I'm from Hunan. I, I know. I know no, from Hunan. Nothing against Hunan. So in this example, it really was Hunan, right? right? So, so Mr. Joe sends his pictures back, and his neighbors thought he was crazy when he's going to Africa in the first place. And now they're thinking, Joe's not more clever than I am. I'm going to Senegal. I'm going to Africa, right? This becomes the major motor of the human movement. This second thing, this emulation effect, and it has pulled. You know, I use the word million just for convenience in the title because that's kind of the... It's a big, big-ass number, basically. Yes. It's a lot of people. For yeah. sure. So this migration, I mean, I'm, I'm curious just because this is a, a China show. Uh, 
you know, in in diaspora communities in the past, for example, you know, in in uh, uh, in North America, the wave that went over during the era of the building of the Trans-Pacific Railroad was mostly from Guangdong province. Uh, the people who, who um, colonized, if you will, all, much of Southeast Asia were from tended to be from Fujian, uh, as are maybe m- most of the people in in uh, Flushing in Queens. Uh, where are these people coming from? I mean, is it Henan, Anhui, Fujian, Zhejiang? I mean, as I'm imagining, probably, or it isn't. It's so this is different from those past waves uh-huh. in the sense that it has been driven by this provincial competition in China right. in policy implementation. And so the first starter in a given country then becomes the sort of master imprint on the popular movement of Chinese people to the given African country. And that's why I use the example of Henan with Senegal. Uh-huh. Because if you go to Senegal today, now, uh, you know, these many years later, a disproportionate number of the Chinese people in Senegal are from Henan. It's amazing. I mean, I discovered this by accident. I would walk up to a Chinese person in the street and strike up a conversation. And they'd say, Zhong. (laughs) And one of the first questions is, where are you from, right? And so you didn't have to talk to more than six people to figure out there's something special going on. They're all from Henan. What, what about other countries? I mean, you, you were in Mozambique and Namibia and, and I mean, in Zambia. Is there, are there sort of a province per country? Is that so, how it I maps? mean, so this far down stream in terms of the movement of peoples, it's become, you know, there, there's, there's some diversity. Mm-hmm. But the typical thing is that you see this strong imprint from the first starter. The company that got there first, the uh-huh. province that got there first, begins to have first starter advantages. You build a national stadium for Senegal. Uh, you get all of your heavy capital equipment into the country duty-free under the terms of the contract. So all of your, most of your costs are amortized. The second comers can't really compete with you. You're there. You have your bit. You have your guanxi. You have your networks. You have, uh, you know, uh, workers. You have s- secondary sort of arrivees who are then there to service you, who are mm-hmm. also from your province. And so and make it the food you like. And make the food and, you right. Like. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so it's not a fixed rule that, you know, there's going to be uh, 80% domination from a given place, but the first starter effect is very strong. What are some of the other first starter provinces in, uh, in, in, in given countries? Just well, so so they, know, they, they tend yeah. to be sort of, um, you know, the next provinces in from the coast. Anhui right. is very big. Uh-huh. Uh, they tend not to be the rich east or eastern coast sure, provinces. Sure. Right. So your Jiangxi and your Jiangxi, uh, right, exactly. uh, okay. Hubei. Well, wow. Hunan. Wow, I mean, yeah. great cuisine. So, yeah. <laughs> that, that's that's fascinating. Um, I wanted to ask uh, years ago, and I can't remember what year this would have been. I read a piece in Granta uh, that was, I mean, it was it was basically aimed at at uh, it was you know kind of in the Dumbisa Moyo kind of uh, critical of of the mostly UK-based aid policy. It was, you know, Bono and Tony Blair and and, and Bob Geldof uh, were the targets of it. But it was painting a sort of scenario almost like the one that you've just done, maybe rosier. It was talking about how, you know, these scrappy young guys from the interior provinces were going there for, for companies that they'd work, worked for, found they liked the place, decided to stay, saw that uh, all these NGO types were flying in and staying at this ridiculously overpriced hotel and they thought they could build a cheap and chipper three-star uh, hotel like the one they had, you know, in the in the, the the county town they lived in back back home. 
Uh, they build this hotel, probably cover it in white bathroom tile. This is the <laughs> norm. There's some blue glass in the windows, <laughs> but um, but then you know it's it's a hundred bucks a night, and they they their occupancy is complete, and and they're they're making good money. Then they decide we need to pave a road up to this thing, and so they 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 know, they know a friend uh, who's in that business, and suddenly there's a road. Suddenly there's there's you know. This, People selling things along that road. They decide they need uh, better electrification. They can't rely on burning all this diesel in this generator. So um, they get the thing electrified. They decide they need better cell cell tower coverage. And pretty soon it becomes sort of a hub for, uh, you know, an infrastructural hub. Is that is that a fantasy or is that is there some of that really happening? Um, uh, well, so what I say, well, what I would say goes back to this first starter thing. So the, the company that comes in from whatever province first then begins to look for subsidiary business opportunities. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. you may have come in never having built a road. You may be, you know, like a building. People who build buildings and people who build roads are often very different people, right? right. But, you know, these are scrappy, opportunistic Chinese companies, and they say, well, you need a road, we'll build a road for you. And next thing you know, they're building, so they, they, they're sort of taking on new uh, vocations for themselves as they go along. And, and they, by sort of way of guanxi, you know, they are figuring out what the needs or uh, interests or desires is the best word, perhaps, of the local government. Sometimes, in fact, really the local government, a provincial or even a, a township government are, and just sort of scrambling to kind of fill whatever niches they can they can occupy and this is this is something that reinforces this first starter thing because you know Hunan people are going to source from Hunan people um, but how it does do do you see this kind of thing benefiting the local population i mean are they really helping to grow the economy in a way that is benefiting uh, the africans who were there before sure so you know the this this is very um, useful question for returning to this this notion of of empire or neocolonialism. Um, in the first wave of this stuff, in the mid-1990s, um, you have to remember, so at, in the late 80s, at fall of the Berlin Wall, the end of communism, et cetera, et cetera, a couple of really th- important things happen uh, for Africa. Western Europe turns its attentions east. Uh, the Western Europeans who have just been through mind you, uh, a near full century of incredible horror, uh, know that, you know, mass unemployment and economic crisis in Europe leads to bad things, and moreover, up to, to return to the, to, to repeat the, the, the word opportunism, they say, you know, we've got these people called East Europeans right on our doorstep who are well-educated, uh, who live in severely undercapitalized economies and who are willing to work for a pittance relative to what we work for. And so the Western Europeans who had essentially, and I'm making air quotes here, owned Africa, you know, there's this giant sucking sound out of Africa and they turned completely eastward. They're mm-hmm. looking now at Eastern Europe. The United States, deprived of its sort of standard fixed enemy for the last half century, it begins sort of this casting about for an, another purpose, right? And it settles upon this, what I fancy is a war in the greater Middle East, which is, you know, the Islamic world stretching from Mauritania and Northwest Africa all the way to Afghanistan. And it has never really emerged from that. And so Africa is just sitting there. Um, and Africans were, re- that's at the political level and at the economic level, uh, African leaders and African elites felt, you know, stranded, essentially. Um, the Chinese show up a few years later, 
uh, after go the going out thing is announced, and they have financing mechanisms to pay for things, and they have ambitions to, to get big contracts for their uh, public works companies. And the Africans have a response of irrational exuberance. Basically, having been stranded already for the better part of a decade, they say, essentially, just where do we sign? Where do we sign? The Chinese have come with ready-made plans, a sort of a, a, a semblance of choice, which is really only a semblance. Look, we'll give you a choice. We have three pre-selected companies. Just choose one, <laughs> right? Um, and the Africans... Two designs for the stadium. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so the Africans just begin signing up for this stuff. Well, and, and the Chinese are not telling them to restructure their banks or... Nothing. Have telling them nothing right? at all. Telling them nothing at all. Right. They're happy to enable you, Mr. Despot. Right. That's right. right. Um, and so the first wave is entirely like this. And the African side, uh, or, you know, we're going to speak virtually of Africans, but there are many sides, right? There's 54 countries in Africa. They are not making really cold national interest decisions. Uh, and, and so it emerges that lots of stuff gets built, but it's important to pause to dwell on how the stuff gets built, right? So we've already seen how the, it's, there's pre-selection, so there's no real choice. There's no open bidding, first of all. There's, so there's no real choice for, on the African side. There's pre-selection of the Chinese companies. The fin there's a fairly fixed financial model for financing this, which is presented as a win-win, but is really much more complicated than that. We'll give you whatever the big piece of infrastructure you need in exchange for either natural resources themselves or a guarantee based on natural resources, right? The natural resources are most of the time not renewable, right? So you're going to give up 20 years of a natural resource for a road or a stadium or something like that, which has a fixed life, right? Um, and uh, so the financing is going back to China because you're repaying the thing, right? The design you're paying for, that money's going back to China. The mm -hmm. workers are all coming from China, their salaries are banked in China, so that money's all going to China. Very often, the materials are sourced, almost always, the materials, especially the complicated materials, are sourced in China. That money's all going to China. Um, and on top of all of that, there's no training or turnover. Skills transfer, right. Skills transfer, technology transfer, nothing. Beneficiation. Is Beneficiation, right. in the cliche, right? There's none of that, right? And so... For me, that's a really vivid example of disproportion, a lack of choices and why one must sort of face up to, if not completely resolve the question of is this imperial or neocolonial, at least engage in a discussion of it. A decade later, the Africans, meaning recently, begin to wake up to this. Not the African leaders by and large, but African civil society. African countries very often have complex and very energetic civil societies. And you begin to see more and more, and this is underway, uh, pushback. They're saying, look, this win-win stuff, you know, we were excited at first. We had a new part, just like you, the leaders, we, the people, we were excited. We saw stuff happening, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, now we see Chinese people pushing wheelbarrows and we're not, you know, the contracts are opaque at best and there's no sourcing in our own country. And so, yeah, it, it, is this and sometimes, in fact, the, the the thing that's delivered by China is of shoddy quality, and so <laughs> surprise, it, surprise, 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 right? Well, so, so, yeah. so, is this really a win-win? And more and more, the answer has been from the civil society side, no, right? And so, the the state in country after country, two things have happened: the state African leaders have been very belatedly sort of comparing notes among themselves. You structured your deal with China. How, how do you do it? What should we learn from it? They're comparing right. notes, and then the people, by way of this push pushback, both in the sort of sort of day to day or popular organization way, but also via elections, 
are putting pressure on the leaders to negotiate more smartly, somewhat more openly, and to improve the equation for the African side. Would you say there's uh, any country in Africa that, that is getting it right in its dealings with China? Or, or That's a good least, question. Um, you know, which country is getting it the rightest, if not? Right? Well, so, so I would say that there's, I don't have a definitive answer about which country is getting it right, but there's a trend of getting writer, if to, to, to use, use an awful, my, uh, <laughs> <laughs> an sort of phrase <laughs> in English, phrase. right? But um, so this summer, um, uh, I spent this, most of the summer in Kenya, um, and as I was arriving, Kenya signed a really big um, rail contract with, with China, um, and there's been enormous pushback from civil society in Kenya about this, and it forced the Kenyan government on the fly to justify all sorts of things and to push back. I think it appears like the Kenya, it had all pretty much been, you know, all, all the Signed, terms. sealed, and delivered. Exactly. Yeah, right. But the Kenyan side figured that, it, look, uh -huh. this is going to be poison for us if we pr just proceed this way. And so pushed back in ways that got better labor participation for the Kenyan side, you know, some better sourcing and technology transfer for the Kenyan side, et cetera, et cetera. The, th the thing that, uh, that Nigeria just signed a big rail deal with with, um, with China, China as well. um, and Nigeria is a really murky place, but it's a huge market, and that's really important. Uh, and Nigeria has very vigorous civil society, even though it's a very corrupt, uh, poorly led country, right? And so this is going to be a really important one to watch Absolutely. because the Nigerians are really aware and attentive to all of this stuff. It and used and to they're, be. They're, they're not a people who like to keep quiet when they have something to say at all. <laughs> I mean, it used to be though that um, if you you know, depending on which country. You decided to look at, you could come away with very, very different conclusions, sort of the seven men on the elephant, old blind men with the elephant. I um, mean, so that, you know, Zambia was sort of the classic case of, uh, of, of copper, uh, copper mines that, that were horribly abusive. And, and, uh, and then there were, there were better cases that were offered where there was um, maybe more evidence of, of, uh, you know, beneficence on the side of, of, of Chinese. So there wasn't an obvious mineral resource or, or, a, or a diplomatic recognition that needed to be flipped from Taipei to Beijing uh, and, and where there was less pushback from civil society. But you're, you're suggesting now that, that uh, they're all sort of now going, wait a minute, uh, is, is this, I, I, it's been a while since I revisited this. So um, that, that's very interesting. Yeah, so Li Keqiang went to uh, China, um, to Africa, and you know, there's very kind of striking messaging that was taking place in, during his visit, his last visit to the continent, where he's basically saying, we've heard you to Africans. We've we, got a lot of things wrong, and we, we're going to do better. Right. The big, the big handicap on the African side, I mean, why Nigeria is such an interesting case is because Nigeria is, a, is an immense country, and most African countries are not immense. Right. And so, you know, Africa had this, has, you know, inherited from European imperialism this extraordinarily grave handicap of balkanization, right? And so you have these tiny countries with narrow beaches like Togo and Benin and lots of landlocked countries and just irrational country, countries that have no sort of structural rationality to them right. whatsoever and that are moreover really small. And you're a little tiny small country and you're negotiating, it's not because it's China, with any big country, you're at a severe handicap. Mm -hmm. You know, what do you represent in the scheme of things? Nothing. Yeah, uh, and so the answer for Africans, <laughs> and the other answer for Africans is, is, is sort of 
collective negotiation with, with, with China. And that's something that's hap- beginning to happen in East Africa. The East Africans want to have an integrated railway. They didn't start planning this quickly enough, but they're sort of on to it. Okay, we've got all these integrated schemes we want to have the Chinese help us accomplish. Let's begin to make this a joint approach to China. Instead of coming to Beijing singly and saying, how about this, how about that? Right. Let's pool our negotiation. China never likes that. I mean, they like to treat singly with European <laughs> countries and not sure. with the EU, for example. But um, let's take it back to the granular level, the individual level that, that I think is, is what, what is so compelling about your book. Um, one thing that strikes me is just the lack. I mean, it's it's, it's perhaps excusable. These aren't people from, from you know, um, really educated cosmopolitan backgrounds, but the lack of historical perspective among Chinese as they go and how oblivious they seem to be to the sort of legacy of European colonialism that they may be blundering into many of the same pitfalls, displaying many of the same kind of execrable attitudes, the racism. So I mean, let's let's talk a little bit about that. Maybe uh, let's start with race, about, um, you know, outward manifestations of, of racism on the part of Chinese and uh, and um, if, 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 if at all, vice versa. Sure. So, I mean, the first thing to be said is that, you know, Chinese, like other peoples in other places, have an attitude of superiority about everyone. Mm-hmm. I mean, Chinese people think they are, you know, what, is the, what, what do Chinese people call themselves? They call themselves Huaren. Yeah. You know, if you look, think about the character that's Hua in Huaren, it means magnificent, right? I mean, well, ornate, flowery, baroque. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, well, but right. Re- you know, I, mean, I, think, I don't think that's by accident. I mean, so the Chinese have, I mean, the French do too. No, it's what is right. France exactly. in the scheme of things, if you want to speak mm. relatively speaking, right? But the Chinese, this all starts... The arrogance from, of a great civilization. Right? Exactly, right? So that's where it all begins. Um, and along with that arrogance comes a, a kind of provincialism and um, kind of um, self-obsession. You know, Americans can be provincial in their own way, too. Really? Absolutely. <laughs> <Imagine that. laughs> uh, um, so these are the things that sort of precondition the psychology of these people coming into the African landscape. And on top of that, the, as you would expect, these being starting out from the sort of tradesman background that mm-hmm. came to build mm-hmm. the stadiums and things like that, they're not terribly well-educated people. They're, by definition, working-class people. Um, and so you wouldn't expect them to be sophisticated or cosmopolitan in their worldview. They come, you know, with a very kind of rank language about Africans and about Africa. Is it trending better, though? Well, so I like to think that if you have made a personal decision that is to stay in Africa indefinitely to pursue your own interests, that most people will come to the realization at a fairly early stage that it's to my advantage to understand the locals and to treat them with respect. Not everyone will come to that conclusion, but there's going to be a kind of differential outcome that favors the people who kind of get that. You, you, you did encounter such people, though. You encountered people who, who really had, um, f- you know, opened their arms wide and embraced and, and, and seemed to have gotten I could past. ask, I mentioned before uh, about the guy in Mozambique who mm-hmm. um, basically has set up there and uh, um, you know wants his family to be Mozambicans. Could you talk a little bit about him? Right. I wouldn't have actually, it's, you, what you said is technically true. I wouldn't actually say that's the kind of the starting idea that he wants his family to be Mozambicans. <laughs> well, he wants to make he a lot of money. He wants to own okay. land. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> right? Um, and so he shows up. Um, why he shows up in Mozambique is itself an interesting story. Um, I tell 
uh, uh, sort of I recount a long road trip with this guy. He comes to meet me un- extraordinarily. He comes from his family, his farm in kind of south-central Mozambique, a f- couple hundred miles uh, to the capital, Maputo, to pick me up. Uh, you know, uh, I had been in touch with him by email before. I met him online. Um, he's excited about I don't think he's ever met an American before. So he's, you know, he's just completely thrilled to have this experience. He, at his own expense, he drives his pickup to come pick me up, and we drive back to, to the farm together, and it's kind of a day-long trip where we got to know each other. Um, and we stop for dinner, and, and he begins asking me about where I'm going after Mozambique. And I start mentioning countries, and it's clear that he has no idea where these, these are African <laughs> countries, right? He's in Africa, he has, and they're in the neighborhood. And he has no idea where they are. And so I start drawing a map for him. Uh-huh. And I tell all, all of this in that chapter. And you know, he's, never, he's in Mozambique. He's bought land. He's brought his family, and he's never really pieced together where he is geographically or how I've the, met expats in Beijing. <laughs> how, the region is in, how the region is connected, right? And so I begin to ask him, well, why, why did you come to Mozambique? And this was fascinating to me. So he said, well, you know, he had done a little bit of business. In, he's, he, he had owned several businesses here in China, in, in um, uh, Fujian province and in uh, Guangdong province and in Henan. He's from Henan. Um, and... Um, he had tried to do some business. I think it was in Abu Dhabi, and it had not gone well. Um, and so he comes back, and he goes to a trade fair in Guangdong, and there's like an Africa trade booth. And he overhears people talking about how you can get rich in Africa, and there's this booming, you know, booming opportunities in Africa. And so this, he had never thought about Africa before. And so he begins to sort of do a little research about Africa, and he says to himself, look, you know, I, I've competed. I've been a business person in China. I know how rude the competition is. It's a real sort of dog-eat-dog place. I'm not going to Africa if there's lots of Chinese people in Africa. I don't want to go to a place where there's lots of Chinese people. <laughs> Especially right? those Hunanese. Right? <laughs> right. And so he says, well, so African countries speak a variety of European languages. Which European languages do Chinese people speak? Well, of course, English will be the most popular. There's some French-speaking countries. Not many Chinese people speak French, but French isn't exactly obscure. He discovers there's some Portuguese-speaking places. He says, no Chinese person speaks Portuguese. I'm going to go to a Portuguese-speaking country. So he goes to to Mozambique, and he lands in Maputo, figuring there's not going to be a single Chinese person in Maputo. He, He, and discovers that there's... You know, he discovers this formula, which he shares with the nigga Jungur and Daochu Doyo. You know? Uh, so the he, Chinese are everywhere. Yeah, so he lands in Maputo, and there's Chinese people, right? And so he's, uh, and he has some bad experiences. Oh, fuck. <laughs> and, so, and so he sets off into the countryside, and he actually helps um, build some roads, you know, um, uh, to, in, to sort of ingratiate himself with the local people. He already has the idea he wants land. And so he works on a road project as like a foreman. He had never built anything before in his life, but he sort of gets involved in a road project, you know, really pitching in, you know, physically even. Um, and he begins to develop his guangxi, and, and then he, um, uh, you know, he, he, he gets this land and a really wonderful plot of irrigated valley land, very, very rich. Um, and uh, he gets it on very good terms, and then, it turns out that the locals, the neighboring people, are sort of beginning to suspect him and to resent him, right? And so he's worried about being able to hold on to the land. And then he gets the idea that he'll bring his young teenage sons, meaning, you know, his older son, I think, was like 15 at the time. And then he had a younger son who was like 13 or something like that. He'll bring them uh, to Mozambique, to the farm, and 
eventually have them marry local women. And because land ownership is restricted to nationals, he will have built his own little clan that is technically speaking Mozambican, and and he can retain it. <laughs> wow, wow. Let's talk about intermarriage, though. Is how how common is intermarriage now? Is it is it, is it uh, picking up speed? Is it? Um, I, I mean, I feel know, like I, that's, that's the uh, major, you know, way to integrate, right? I mean, sure. So you know, I'm really hesitant to speak uh, in terms of. Statistics about sure. anything. I have only my anecdotal sense of things, but well, I mean, the first thing I would I'm say, I'm fine with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the first thing is clearly there's a heavy bias toward um, males in terms of migration right. to Africa. Right. I mean, in my own anecdotal sense, you know, probably 85 percent of the Chinese people who have come in this big wave are males. Right. And so right away you have, uh, you know, let's say 85 percent of two million. Right. That's a lot of Chinese men sure. uh, in Africa yeah. and you know, 1. they're alone, million, yeah. right? And so uh, most men don't want to stay alone, right? And so that imposes a variety of choices, right? And one of the choices is that you work really hard and you succeed, and after you've succeeded, relatively speaking, you go home or call home and you attract a Chinese partner to come join you, right? And that model certainly exists, and I encountered lots of people who did that. But that model is not sufficient. It will not work for everybody. And uh, it clearly isn't working for everybody. And so people who may not have arrived with the idea that they're going to have an African partner or an African spouse uh, eventually sort of uh, resolve to, to do so. Um, the other thing that happens, uh, um, and this is universal, this happens everywhere. It happens in China. It happens to Westerners in China. It happens to Chinese people in Europe. It happens to Europeans in America. It happens in every different pattern of configuration you can think of. People, for transactional reasons, you know, in immigration situations, begin to think about, well, the best way to resolve my you know, status is to have, you know, a, a, a union with a local person, right? Yeah. Um, and these things turn do, do out. Do you know the phrase "sporta la pasporta"? <laughs> of course. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, mean, it's, I think that's usually for uh, uh, an African guy marrying a, like a German woman, or yeah. you know, <laughs> but it works the other way too. <laughs> sure. So lots of Chinese people enter into these partnerships that way, and some of them are strictly transactional, meaning, in fact, literally, like I'll pay you this amount and. After a certain legal minimum amount of time, we sort of just say goodbye to each other. And some of them may start that way and develop into eventually actually True real relationships. Right. And some of them actually are, are real relationships from the beginning. And mm-hmm. so all of those are all of those. Of course, examples. every possible configuration. Sure. And that too. Fascinating. Uh, I wish we had more time. There's so much more to talk about here. Um, but we're, we're, uh, we've promised that we'd, we'd let you get on to your, your next appointment. So, um, Jeremy. Shall we move on to recommendations sure. very quickly and thank our guests for, for – well, Howard, that was great, man. I, I'm, I, I feel like uh, you're going to sell a lot of books. <laughs> a lot of people are going to read about our crazy Hunan guy in, in Mozambique. <clears throat> Jeremy, do you want to start? Yeah, I'd like to recommend Arthur Krober's uh, essay uh, from the China Economic Quarterly that uh, was just hey, republished, a, a version of it uh, on, on um, China File. Oh, right, right. right. Um, uh, and it's called, uh, this version of it at least, is called Here is She's China, Get Used to It. Um, and it, I just think it's a, a very, to me, uh, compelling and accurate take on, on, on what's going on. And I mean, the essential premise is that China's, the Communist Party's rule is not fragile. Um, and, you know, whether you like that or not, or you like them or not, it's something you just have to get used to. 
um, which I found quite strange. This view has been called contrarian uh, quite frequently uh, on, uh, by various academics. And it makes me think these people don't get out enough because if you do business in China, um, the sense of you know, e economic doom is, is not something you feel a lot. <laughs> um, anyway, that's my recommendation. Arthur Kroeber, here is Seize China. Get used to it. I, I'm such an Arthur Kroeber fan that I, I'm, I'm going to rush right out and read this story. I'm actually, I just opened it in my browser right now. Uh, That's cheating. Market, uh. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, I'll go next and then leave Howard for last. Um, I'm going to recommend something that I, I'm a, a gigantic fan of. Um, it's the website Quora. And Jeremy's <laughs> chuckling here because he's always ribbing me about my enthusiasm for Quora. Quora is a, a uh, question and answer based website. Um, it was founded by Adam D'Angelo and, um, and and Charlie Cheever, who were two of the very very early crew at Facebook. And it um, just from a, 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 a technological point of view, it's just a splendid site. I mean, it's just rich with all sorts of, uh, of, of the, the the newest in web technology, and uh, it's it's. It's got uh, all uh, sort of Wikipedia elements to it, you know, in that it's sort of user ed editable knowledge community stuff. Uh, but it's based on answering questions, and uh, you can post a question, answer a question, uh, follow questions, follow individuals. Uh, so there's a very, very heavy, heavy social aspect to it. I um, I have been a, a, a I'm, I was one of the first ten thousand users of the site, and and I mean now it's of course grown to many, many millions of users, uh, very active China topic on, on that site. There are a lot of people who, who uh, post pretty intelligent answers, and then there are a lot of, you know, it's, it's a good kind of bellwether for a lot of Chinese perspectives on, on issues related to China, um, and, and, and rich with content on India as well. Actually, Indians are the biggest users of that site. It's a, numerically, uh, people from India are, 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 I mean, not surprisingly, because there are so many Anglophone Indians, uh, are, are very, very, very numerous on that site. So it's, it's, it's terrific. Um, Quora.com, can't, can't recommend it more highly. It's... Um, Place that it's completely supplanted. It's a place where, if you're like Kaiser, you can write enough uh, word count to basically deserve a full time journalist salary and get rewarded with a fleece at the end of the year for That's a top right. writer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Just> Meaning <laughs> that they pay writers well? No, they no, don't, no, no, they, they don't. don't. Literally, oh, they, they don't. gave him a fleece. A fleece. A, a, oh. As a reward a for writing. Like about 500,000 words of, oh, okay. of prose. Right. right, I've written quite, quite a lot. It's, Actually, I just. It's I just, strictly new media economics. I, I completed something. That it's probably, I, I, I'm guessing, 7,000 words, an answer uh, of 7,000 words that um, basically tries to answer the question. Why are Americans always going, why don't you all hate your government as much as I think you should? Which is, I think, the, the root of the question. You do that accent well. Well, thank you. I grew up in Arizona. Uh, Howard, on to you. Take us out. So I'm going to recommend a book, and I'm going to recommend a piece of technology. I'm writing a new book um, and have been doing, actually reading for it for quite some time, three years intensively, uh, purposefully for the book, but a lot, much longer. Your book, by the way, is on Chinese power, That's which right. is I, I'm I'm really I can't wait to read. I'm, I'm very eager to, yeah. to read that. Yeah, it's sort of a reading of what this what does what do past conceptions of power geopolitically uh, uh, meaning uh, in China suggest about the future of Chinese power? Just like Martin Jakes, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so the book is uh, by a uh, uh, historian at University of North Carolina named Mark Driscoll. Uh, and it's called Absolute Erotic 
absolute grotesque. And it's about the Japanese use of drug and prostitution trades in China to finance Japanese empire. Um, <clears throat> and uh, it's an extraordinary book, uh, brilliant, brilliant research. Um, just in the last day or two, two days ago, I think, or a day, a day ago, the Wall Street Journal had a long feature about uh, Prime Minister Abe of Japan and his grandfather, Kishi Nobuo. Um, and it, the piece was interesting. You know, it's, it's daily journalism. It's not a history book, right? But, but you know, Kishi, uh, Abe's grandfather, was, the, was uh, the highest civilian official in uh, Manchukuo. Um, for a period of time uh, during the Japanese Imperium. I did not know that. And um, uh, there are revelations in this book about Kishi's role that the Wall Street Journal reporter had no clue to, and which will I'm not going to spoil the, the, the secret. Just Mark look, Driscoll. Look for the book. Mark D-R-I-S-C-O-L-L. Yes, okay, absolute great. erotic, great. absolute grotesque. Um, so the technology, first a... Um, Disclaimer, I don't receive money from Apple, and I'm not an Apple fanboy in any sense. And everything I'm about to say that you could do with a uh, Samsung Xiaomi or any Android phone. But I got an iPhone, the big plus iPhone, um, when they first came out uh, and have since been traveling with it. I bought a small stand so it stands up on my desk. I don't have to hold it. And I use a Bluetooth keyboard with it. Um, and now I no longer travel with a laptop. And as I said before we started recording, I'm not going to travel with laptops anymore. Um, I write my book on it. Um, I do everything on it. And I carry it around in my pocket. I don't have to worry about somebody snooping in my computer. That never happens. Come on. Uh, it's happened. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me. Wow. I think especially if you work for the New York Times. <laughs> I, I just, I, I'm not ready to let go of this. I'm holding my, my 15-inch MacBook Pro Retina. You like large instruments, I Kaiser. Do. I like this. large instruments. I do. Uh, it's, you know, Musical I, I gotta or otherwise, somehow. no Got to compensate somehow. <laughs> uh, hey, uh, Howard, now I can't wait to talk to you again uh, for your next book. Uh, Jeremy, man, well, we're going to, uh, we've got a good number of shows in the can right now, but we're, we're going to keep it up before February, right? Yes, that's we'll right. Stack up a bunch of them so that you'll hear the voice of Jeremy Goldcorn for, for many months to come. Meanwhile, we will see you next week on the Seneca Podcast, and uh, happy holidays to all of our listeners. Take care.